We've spent this summer so far doing a deep dive into the book of Colossians. And in this letter, we've found the Apostle Paul writing to encourage this small church and also to call them deeper in to their faith in Jesus. To do that, Paul has circled around and around one central idea, that Jesus is everything. That Jesus is the first and the last and everything in between. And as Paul explores this, it leads us not only into worship, but also into an entirely new way of living. Last week, we heard the call to be who we are in Christ, that we've died to sin in our old lives, that we've been raised already to new life in Christ. So we must take off our old clothes of Adam and put on now the garments of Christ. That as our status and identity has changed in Jesus, so too our lives need to change with them. But with what we heard last week, things were still a little vague, general, unclear. What does it actually look like in our lives to seek the things that are above where Christ is? To do, as Paul said, everything in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, this is what it looks like. And so as we open our Bibles together this morning, I want to invite you to do whatever you need to, to listen well to words from the book that we love. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched in order to please them, but wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So work for the true master, Christ. Anyone who does wrong will be paid back for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's Colossians 3, 18 through 4, verse 1, and we'll look back at it a couple times if you want to keep your finger in your Bible. Paul's grand vision of setting our minds on things in heaven where Christ is, of of living the new life of Jesus Christ in the world, sounds an awful lot like a mundane list of things to do in the home. It may be shocking that it isn't about going out to the ends of the earth and doing large, world-changing things. We often assume that the important stuff is the stuff that happens in Washington, D.C. or G7 summits, the really big stuff. 
But the truth is that the world is transformed when our homes are transformed. These most basic relationships in our lives where we are most known, where we know most fully, where we're least able to hide are the places where our true selves come out and precisely the places where we need first to put on the clothes of Christ. But before we dive into the different relationships that Paul outlines and and what it is we're called to do in them, we need to acknowledge something. We need to acknowledge that this passage has been used poorly too often in our church's history. That this passage has been used too many times to justify the abuse of power, to prop up misogyny, to defend slavery. Too often we use our scriptures not as a means to examine ourselves and take off the clothes of Adam to put on the garments of Christ, but instead to defend the way things are, to get what it is we already want, to do what it is we already think. Too often it's been this passage and its parallel in Ephesians 5 that are pulled out barely read, and then thrown around to justify abuse and inequality. And as the church, we need to acknowledge that. And we need to repent of it, whether or not we personally had anything to do with it or not. But while we acknowledge that, just because it's been used poorly in the past doesn't mean we should just skip over it now. There are many who see the way it's been used and want us to just throw it out and keep moving. They imagine Paul here is just accommodating the gospel to his own time and place and what was culturally acceptable then as far as gender roles and equality within the home. And since we live in a different place and time, since things have changed and this is clearly outdated, let's just throw it out and move on. This too is just as poor a use of our scriptures. And so my hope this morning is that you'll suspend judgment about this passage just long enough for us to explore it together, for us to read it carefully, and see whether or not we may just discover something beautiful of the age to come in it, something of the kingdom of God, something of the garments of Christ that we may be called to put on today. So let's start to dig into it, to see what exactly Paul has to say about what the new life of Christ looks like in these, the most important spheres of our lives. Paul discusses three different sets of relationships, wives and husbands, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. We'll look at each of those in turn first relationship Paul looks at is between wives and husbands. And right here in the very beginning, we're tipped off that something is going to be different in this Christian code for the home. The very first word tells us that a radical shift has already taken place from what was customary in the day. Wives. That's right. We hear these opening words, wives, Submit to your husbands, and we already begin to roll our eyes, 
to say, here goes chauvinistic Paul again. Here's outdated Bible stuff again. But in this very first word, wives, Paul has already thrown the traditional household codes out the window. See, these sets of instructions like this were common in Paul's day. Instructions for how the home was to work. But none of those looked anything like this. See, those household codes were always addressed exclusively to the male head of the household. Everything was directed to that one. There would be instructions about other members of the home, surely, but it was addressed solely to the male head. They were the ones in authority, it was thought. They were the ones with the power. They were the only ones who really mattered, so they were the only ones addressed. But Paul begins, wives. And by addressing each member of the household directly, Paul is seeking to do what he's done so many other places in his letters, to give each and every person the dignity and personhood that they have in Christ. In addressing wives at all, let alone in addressing them first, means that Paul considers them equal persons of dignity and worth within the church and within the home. So begin by making sure you hear that. As Paul addresses wives directly, it means he considers them persons, equal persons of dignity and worth. Thank you, Grace. There's another reason, though, that I think Paul addresses wives before husbands. And it's because here, just as in the entire letter of Colossians, Genesis 1 through 3 stands just in the background. We heard last week the call to take off the clothes of Adam and put on the clothes of Christ. But here, too, Genesis 3 lies in the background. For where else did God speak first to the wife and then to the husband? But there, when he found them in the garden, hiding in shame because of their sin, and God turns first to Eve and then to Adam, And if Genesis 3 has to do with the consequences of Adam and Eve's first sin, then here in Colossians 3 we find the consequences of our new life having risen in Christ as the same sets of relationships that were broken there are now somehow healed. For there, God tells Eve that her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her. There, God tells Eve, you will have great pain in childbearing. There, God tells Adam, your work has become toil. And here we find those same three relationships, husband and wife, children and parents, work, now set in a different light as we seek the things that are above. So as we continue to strip off the clothes of Adam and put on the clothes of Christ, What are Paul's instructions to wives and husbands? Well, let's look. It's 3, 18 and 19, if you're still looking in your Bibles with me. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's easy to hear those words and begin to assume some stuff underneath 
some assumptions about gender norms, that it must be that Paul thinks that the man is in charge of the home. Man's supposed to be the one off working and providing. The wife's supposed to stay home, do as she's told, raise the children, keep the house. But look carefully. Paul says, none of that. That may work in some homes. It may look different in other ones. Paul doesn't actually say that at all. And if we are to understand what he does say, we need to understand the way in which words like submission and love have been forever changed for those who are in Christ. We need to remember, for instance, Philippians 2 and the way in which Christ becomes our supreme example of submission as he empties himself of all divinity for our sakes, as he empties himself and aligns himself to the will of God for him, as he becomes obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians 2, and that it's because of that submission to the will of God, of giving his life away, that Christ is also glorified and raised to the name that is above every name. And that it is this spirit, this way of submitting, that all of us are now called to have as the same mind that was in Christ. We need to remember, too, the way in which Christ has forever redefined love. Love has become a pretty empty word in our world. I'm never quite sure what people mean when they use it. Usually it has to do with an emotional attraction between two people, with hearts and cupids and chocolates and those things. At best, it often means to cherish another one or to hold them fondly in your thoughts. But none of those captures what Paul means when he says love and when he calls husbands to love their wives. Because Paul means the kind of love Christ had for the church. Self-giving, sacrificial, others before yourself, dying on the cross kind of love. It's helpful to note that in Ephesians 5, which is a parallel to this one, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives submitting to their husbands looks nothing like laying down and becoming a doormat because the husbands to whom wives are called to submit are not those who will rule with self-interest, but those who are likewise called to give themselves up to seek the good of their wife above their own, to sacrifice for their flourishing and to seek to make them whole. The whole relationship has been transformed to look like Jesus. There was a quote at the beginning of your bulletin this morning from Kathy Keller, who wrote a book with her husband Tim called The Meaning of Marriage. She said, In Jesus, we see all the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. For in our relationship, we are to seek the things that are above. We are to look to Christ, who is both the one emptying himself out for the will of the Father and the one who shows us what true love looks like. Putting the other before yourself, giving up your life. So wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
The second relationship Paul outlines is that of children with parents. And again here, Paul is turning the tables on all the traditional roles as he addresses children first. By addressing children, making them members of the church in their own right, with their own rights and responsibilities, something that never would have been done outside the church. Another new thing Paul does is to tell children to obey both parents equally, not just the male head of the household. More evidence that Paul here is not just falling back into the ways of the world, but calling us higher up and higher in. So here's what Paul has to say to children and parents. It's verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, and we can hear parents in that, do not provoke your children or they will become discouraged. And here in those two short sentences, Paul captures what thousands of parenting books for generations have been struggling to. The balance that makes parenting work. See, typically we fall on one side or the other of what Paul's saying here. Either we hone in on that first sentence, children, obey your parents. We get very into rules and obedience and structure and discipline. We latch on to that spare the rod, spoil the child talk. Or on the other side, it doesn't sound fun, does it? (laughs) On the other side, we let children just range free. We don't impose any rules on them and simply wait to see what emerges from within them. We let them be who they are and avoid discipline and boundaries, afraid that it may twist or crush young life. But Paul would have us avoid both extremes and find our balance in the middle. And we find that balance in the middle not because it's proven effective or to work or because that's what people used to do, but because we're called to live out the gospel together, to seek the things that are above where Christ is, And so in our relationships as parents and as children, grace and love and obedience are all rolled up into one as they are in the gospel. Which means parents must assure their children that they are loved and accepted and valued for who they are. Not because of who they ought to be, who they should have been, who they might become if they just try a little harder. For God loved us while we were still sinners while we were still in darkness, due to no beauty or hard work or even brokenness of our own, but simply because God loved us. And so obedience is never a condition for a parent's love. But just like our obedience to God, it becomes the overflowing of gratitude for genuine love that's been received. We have twins who are two, and they're in full two-ness, which means they're blatantly disobedient about every three minutes, right? Um, And every three minutes in between. It's really easy to fall into a place where we use love and affirmation to try to coax them into being obedient. We must remember to make sure they know they're just as loved, they're just as accepted, even when they're not listening, even when they're breaking things, even when they're hitting each other, they are just as loved because we love them, because we are their parents, no matter what they do and who they become. And it's often when they know we love them, 
when they're able to connect again with us, that they do finally listen because they know they're obeying one who loves them no matter what. Our obedience comes out of gratitude for the undeserved love of God that pours out over us. And the same is true as we seek to live out the ways of the gospel in this relationship, children to parent. It cannot begin and end with children obey because our obedience as Christians has been transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it's obedience when it flows out of gratitude, when it's a response in love to love. That's what's pleasing to the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. The final third relationship Paul discusses in the home is one that's probably a little foreign to us. I don't think any of you have slaves or masters in your homes. And while slavery was different in the Roman Empire than what we think of in the transatlantic slave trade, it is still shocking that as Paul turns to speak to slaves and masters, he doesn't simply abolish slavery outright. That he doesn't turn and say that all slaves are free and it's impermissible for any Christian to hold another as their property. But what Paul does is something I think is more clever and practical. Rome didn't look too highly on slaves just announcing themselves to be free. And if you don't believe me, go watch Spartacus. It didn't end well in the end. What Paul did here is in the long run, I think, far more effective. It's the reason that when that transatlantic slave trade finally did fall, it was Christians on the front lines of abolition. It's why Christians are still on the front lines fighting against human trafficking and modern slavery today. Because what Paul does is set slaves free from the inside by making them people. One of the striking changes that Paul makes in his code for the home is that the stronger parties are given not just rights, but also duties. And those who find themselves in the submissive part of the relationship are given not just duties, but rights. When Paul tells slaves to obey their earthly masters, it's because he wants them to know that they too can do whatever they do in word or deed, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That they too are able to work for their true master, Christ. That they do what they do, not because their master tells them to. That would make their whole will and identity subject to another. That would make them less than a person. But that they can work wholeheartedly because they work for their true master, Christ that they too can work for the Lord, that they too are whole people who matter in the eyes of God, that they are no longer to be known as slaves to their Christian masters, but now as brothers and sisters in Christ. They and all others are to be treated with justice and fairness, equals in the Lord, in whom, Paul has already said, is no longer Greek or Jew, 
circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And as Paul reminds all of us of their new identity in Christ, the seeds of the end of slavery are planted. But what Paul has to say here is also more broadly applicable to the rest of us. Like I said, I don't think any of you are slaves or have slaves. But we can zoom out and apply how Paul discusses that relationship to think about our working relationships. A Christian at work is to be a whole person, which means totally given to the task at hand, not merely doing the minimum required to avoid being called out or punished. The work we do, we don't do for our managers or our shareholders or our customers. We work for the Lord, which means whatever we do, we must do wholeheartedly. There's no task too menial when it's done for Jesus. For even the lowest task can be done as an act of worship to the Lord, which is, after all, what our lives are meant to be in this new age of the gospel Lives of worship. Everything we are, everything we do is meant to be offered up to the Lord. So tomorrow morning when you roll into the office and have 4,000 unread emails from customers and coworkers that seem like a giant waste of your productivity, read and answer them as though you're doing it for the Lord. When your manager asks you to do something you think is below you, do it as though you're doing it for the Lord. When you realize no one would notice if you cut out a few hours early, that if you cut that corner, you will surely get away with it. Remember that you are working for the Lord Jesus. And when you wake up one day and you realize that you're not where you thought you'd be, that you're not doing what you thought you'd be doing, that all of this seems below the lofty dreams you once held. Remember that this too is an opportunity to glorify God, that even this can be offered to the Lord in worship, that whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward so work for your true master, Christ. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. And that begins in your home, in your marriage if you're married, with your children if you have them, with your parents, and I know you do because you're human, with your job, with your boss, with your employees, in all of these basic relationships in which we spend most of our time, most days, we find opportunities to seek Christ, to put on his clothes, to practice compassion and kindness, humility and meekness and patience, to love and to submit and to obey and to worship. And whatever you do, in thought or in deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have transformed everything about who and how we are. 
So Lord, help us to see how we can live into your ways in our homes as well. How we can give you glory and worship you with how we treat one another in these most basic relationships. Lord, may we learn how to give one another grace, how to love, how to submit and obey, and how to work wholeheartedly as though all we do is for you. Lord, may your spirit continue to speak to us as we lift up our hearts in this song and as we give ourselves to you and your service fully. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.